raise pay, improve conditions, and show respect. Create a place where people want to work. This is Jim Hightower saying, for a straightforward view from workers themselves, go to the advocacy group onefairwage.site. You're listening to X-Ray FM. KXRY Portland. At 91.1 and 107.1 FM. And in Nehalem. Wheeler. Manzanita. And Rockaway Beach. At 91.7 FM. Streaming online everywhere. Live and archived. At X-Ray.FM. Radio is yours. Radio is yours. The Public News Service Daily Newscast, February 7th, 2024. I'm Farah Siddiqui. The House GOP failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The vote was stuck in a tie for several minutes as leaders scrambled, but in the end, four Republicans voted against the measure, leaving the final tally at 214 to 216. Former President Donald Trump received a major setback as Washington courts made the unanimous ruling to deny Trump's presidential immunity. This ruling opens him up to be prosecuted on charges of insurrection from January 6th and plotting to overturn the 2020 election. AARP Iowa is calling on lawmakers to crack down on gift card scams during this year's legislative session. Imposture scams have been the number one consumer fraud scam in Iowa for nine years running and commonly seek payment via gift cards. AARP Iowa's Paige Yon says imposters play on a victim's fears, usually tied to family members. A gift card scam takes place when somebody reaches out and says, hey, your son or daughter is in trouble, they're in jail, perhaps, and the fastest way to get them out is to go buy a gift card and read me the numbers on the back so I can get them out. AARP Iowa's pushing for a measure designed to educate people about gift card scams and encourages consumers to think twice before a falling victim. Gift card scams cost Americans close to $150 million in 2023, according to the Federal Trade Commission. I'm Mark Moran. Lawmakers in Washington Olympia are considering a measure that could significantly boost voter turnout in local elections. Eric Tegedoff has more. House Bill 1932 would allow cities and towns in Washington to change their local elections from odd to even-numbered years. An analysis by the think tank Sightline Institute finds the switch could increase turnout by at least 60 percent. Head of the Northwest Progressive Institute, Andrew Villeneuve, says odd-year elections don't get people to the polls. They have very, very small numbers of voters participating, and it's also a much less diverse electorate than what we would see in an even year. So there's fewer voters of color, fewer young voters voters participating. The bill in the legislature would allow cities and towns to choose if they'd like to switch local elections to even-numbered years. A new report looks at how many people go on to get degrees or other education credentials after high school and says Mississippi has some work to do to improve its numbers. Danielle Smith has more. The Lumina Foundation tracks higher ed attainment and says 60% of working age adults should be earning some kind of post high school degree. Right now, that number is just over 48% in Mississippi and just over 54% nationwide. But Courtney Brown with Lumina says progress is being made. And impressively, this past year, 42 states along with D.C. and Puerto Rico, witnessed an uptake in in degree attainment. Mississippi's goal is to get to 60 percent of adults with a degree or certificate by the year 2035. This is Public News Service. 
Experts say social media algorithms are radicalizing users and increasing extremism in Arizona and around the country ahead of the 2024 presidential election. Alex Gonzalez has more. Michael Chertoff with the National Council on Election Integrity says better protecting data privacy could make the algorithms less destructive without infringing on free speech. I do think we could regulate access to data, uses of data, and the application of algorithms to that data without offending the First Amendment. Chertoff adds that data is one of the most critical ingredients in building algorithms using artificial intelligence. He says data collection by big tech companies should be better regulated as it is used to send specifically targeted and polarizing messages to consumers. A large majority of Americans say they have little to no trust in companies to use AI responsibly, according to the Pew Research Center. A North Carolina nonprofit is helping people from diverse backgrounds break into the technology industry. By offering free intensive training and software development, Code the Dream is empowering underrepresented people with limited financial resources. During the pandemic, Danielle Prelo, a Maryland resident, says she successfully transitioned into a new career by enrolling in remote courses with Code the Dream. I was looking into boot camps, and a lot of boot camps can be like $10,000, which is as much as a car. And I already have student debt, so that necessarily wasn't like the route I wanted to take. Through Code the Dream and the support of her mentors, Prelo says she became an apprentice and ultimately got a job at the SAS Institute. She credits the organization for granting her access to a career she initially thought was unattainable. The tech industry has long faced criticism for its lack of diversity. She says Code the Dream is addressing this issue by eliminating financial barriers that have kept underrepresented people out of the field. Shantia Hudson reporting. It remains unclear if a border security proposal in Congress will cross the finish line. As the controversy continues, Mike Moen reports a group in Minnesota feels the public has lingering misconceptions about immigrants. The compromise bill emerged in the U.S. Senate, but has hit a major roadblock. Fina Iyer with the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota says as the debate unfolds, people need to realize certain long-standing myths about new arrivals are not true, such as immigrants becoming so-called freeloaders. There are so many laws that actually highly restrict immigrants from getting any type of public benefits or services in our country. She adds there's no quick line for those seeking to legally immigrate. As for the Senate bill, Iyer's organization, which is nonpartisan, calls it a misguided border strategy. It says the plan has a few bright spots, but does more harm in trying to address the large numbers of people seeking asylum. And welcome back to the second hour of our program. Uh, my op-ed today over at HartmanReport.com is titled, Was the GOP plan all along to, quote, break America to make room for an authoritarian strongman? And, you know, it's pretty straightforward stuff. I, I actually start out with the story of uh, when I was 22 years old, I took the Dale Carnegie course, and which changed my life. I mean, it gave me a, a set of tools that I've used through, you know, in, in running businesses and in being in the media and all. I, it was just a wonderful thing. I strongly recommend it to anybody, um, uh, you know, uh, who is looking for a, a good jolt. But anyhow, in the fifth or sixth week of the course, we had to do this thing where you get up in front of the whole group, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a public speaking course. You get up in front of the group and you say, I know people in the ranks who will stay in the ranks. Why? I'll tell you why. Simply because they haven't the ability to get things done. And you would have to, you know, perform this, act it out, right? Well, the ability to get things done is a high value for business. 
But it's also a high value in politics. And that's where authoritarian strongmen come in. Because the, most, the single most appealing thing about an authoritarian strongman, about a dictator, is that he can get things done. You know, they, dictators don't have to worry about bureaucracies hindering them or pesky laws and regulations. They don't have to care about local opposition to their projects or their impact on the environment. You know, from making the trains run on time to building the Autobahn and Volkswagen, dictators famously get things done, right? And the corollary to that old nostrum is that when things are going well, when things are working smoothly, when the people are getting what they want from their government, there's little interest in putting a dictator into office. You have to break government really badly to make the people willing to say, yes, we'll take a dictator. It's anything is better than this chaos. Germany, you know, and we've seen this, by the way, throughout history. Germany would not have embraced Hitler if it wasn't for the depression that followed the Treaty of Versailles and the uh, losing World War I. Mussolini stepped in to take, uh, take over Italy during a time of multiple crises, the echo of the pandemic, the flu pandemic, World War I, the economic crash. The government in Italy was so weak that when Mussolini showed up with his 20,000 black shirts, you know, his volunteer militia, the king just said, okay, here, here's the keys. You're in charge now. Pinochet was able to hold Chile in part because Nixon's sanctions had so badly bruised the, the, the Chilean economy. So this is, you know, if you want a strongman, if you want to install a strongman, as we see with, for example, the, the Heritage Foundation's Project 2025, it's all about turning the presidency into a strongman dictator. Or I shouldn't say it's all about, but, you know, in concentrating power in the White House. They're, they're rather upfront about this. So the bottom line is that, you know, I, th I think that these people, the Republicans, have been intentionally breaking our government for, for the better part of 40 years. I realize this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but let me, let me lay this out. Intentionally breaking our government with the idea that if things get bad enough, we will all say, okay, okay, just give us a dictator. Somebody come in and take and fix things, please. I mean, consider what they have done over the last 40 years in their, in their project. They broke our schools and our students, right? Reagan cut federal aid education by a fifth. He ended free college education in California. He, he put us, he gutted civics education in the United States. He put us on the path to $2 trillion in student debt, which is, you know, kneecapping uh, several generations now of young Americans. And now we have right-wing haters who are roiling school boards and threatening teachers to further break schools. Breaking our workers, Reagan also shattered the compact between workers and employers that had created and guaranteed a strong and stable middle class when he busted up Patco and then you know, put an anti-Ray Donovan, an anti-labor lawyer in charge of the Labor Department. And then you know, Trump followed in his footsteps. He put Anthony Scalia's son in charge of the Labor Department, a, you know, a right-wing anti-labor union-busting lawyer. Breaking our manufacturing base, George H.W. Bush broke our nation's job market by executing the Trade Act that went into effect in 89 and amplified the, the, the GATT powers, the free trade powers of GATT. And, and he negotiated NAFTA, which Bill Clinton signed, which began the steady migration of good American jobs to Mexico and China, causing over 15,000 factories to close, over 20 million good jobs to vanish from America. They're breaking our wallets Pharmaceutical and insurance companies scored major victories with George W. Bush. 
the Medicare Advantage scam, and they put and he put in that same piece of legislation. They, they wrote into that law that it is a crime now, it's illegal for the federal government to negotiate with drug companies for pharmaceutical prices. They just have to pay whatever the company says. And as a result of that, Americans now pay as much as 10 times more for drugs than any other country in the world. Breaking our environment. Re Republicans and the fossil fuel billionaires who own them have known since the 70s that their products were going to destroy our environment. And Jimmy Carter tried to do something about this back in the 70s with his solar bank program to have 20% of America's electricity produced by solar power by the year 2000. But, of course, Reagan came into office in 1981 with big bucks from the fossil fuel industry and took Carter's solar panels off the White House and ended his solar bank program, breaking our society. Republicans once talked about freedom and individual responsibility, although, you know, really these were buzzwords for let the billionaires do what they want, ignore the needs of the poor. But now they, they delight in pitting Americans against each other and demonizing minority groups, whether they're racial, religious, or gender, while promoting hateful racist tropes like the so-called Great Replacement Theory. They're breaking our institutions of democracy. Republicans spent three years promoting the lie that Trump beat Biden in 2020. This is on top of 30 years of promoting the idea that there's massive voter fraud in America and using that as an excuse to make it harder for people to vote when there is no fraud crisis in this country. It never has been at least not in the modern era. Breaking our stature in the world. There was a time when Republicans openly and strongly stood against dictators. No longer. Now, you know, I mean, just last week, Donald Trump in one of his rallies openly praised Putin, Orban, and Xi while trashing NATO and the EU. Breaking our public health system. According to the British Journal Lancet, half a million Americans died unnecessarily during the Trump presidency from COVID because he lied about masks and ivermectin and, and uh, hydroxychloroquine and all this other kind of stuff. Breaking women and girls, after a 50-year campaign against Roe v. Wade, Trump finally packed the Supreme Court with radical Catholics and, you know, quoting a 17th century witch-burning English judge. Now states can prosecute women for getting abortions and doctors. Breaking our children. For the past 40 years, the GOP has led the charge to get more guns in our schools. They've been so effective at this that bullets are now the leading cause of death of American children, something that has literally never, ever happened anywhere else in the world before. Breaking entrepreneurs. I mean, there was a time where the, the way to, to, to fully embrace the American dream was to start a small business in your community. You know, the local dry cleaner, the local bank, the local uh, furniture store or electronics store, um, the, 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 the local pharmacy, if I didn't say that, the restaurant, the hotel, the, the travel agency, you know, et cetera. But then in 83, Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Act and other antitrust legislation. And now, you know, if you try to start a small business, you get squashed like a bug by these giant corporations. They have destroyed or damaged, badly damaged our social contract. And now, as a result of the Republicans' 40-year campaign to break America, we have our, you know, finally Americans are reaching the breaking point. Our kids are carrying hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt. 41% of American families have more medical debt than they can handle. Republican governors are rolling out voucher programs that are destroying public school systems all across the country. Fox so-called news and other hate-driven media have convinced, uh, you know, the Trump humpers that that uh, the U.S. is being invaded by brown-skinned people. 
They're in a constant state of hysteria. Oh my God, CRT, oh my God, DEI, oh my God, BLM, oh my God, Antifa, oh my God, Drag Swings, oh, oh my God, Taylor Swift. Pick the boogeyman, right? They're in a constant state of hysteria. And this, this is what the Republicans want. They want this crisis. They want this state of crisis because when people are in a state of crisis, they will go with the dictator. And, and you think the Republicans are not in favor of a dictator? Look at, as I said earlier, Project 2025. You know, let's concentrate as much power as possible in the White House. It's the essence of this plan. And then, of course, who's, who's their leading candidate? Donald Trump, who says, literally, says he wants to be a dictator from day one or on day one. Ten months from now, the choice is going to be ours. we got to get ready for this. I'll be back with uh, more of the news of the day in your calls in just a moment. It's 15 minutes past the end. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be right back. Uh, Russia is now putting gay people in prison. Let me tell you about that in just a second. Welcome back. Joe in Sandpoint, Idaho. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Oh, thanks for taking my call, Tom. I appreciate it. Uh, just a quick question, although there's a lot. I was wondering, I saw the 60-minute episode of the Chinese coming across at the border down south, mm -hmm. and uh, they're following, they're following uh, all the directions and uh, off of their TikTok, and they're flying into the, some of the countries down there and then they're crossing at this particular gate they filmed them and uh, had interpreters and they're like they just got off the airplane and they're claiming asylum they go and check in with the border patrol they uh, have their cases heard and they say nope and they call china and said take them back and china can't take them back they refuse to take them back so they're stuck here yeah. uh in the united states and they're coming across every 30 minutes uh in one particular uh, hole in the fence right. at the end of the wall. Thank right. you for taking my question. And and yesterday, a solution to this was presented to Republicans in the House of Representatives, and MAGA Mike Johnson shot it down because Donald Trump said, don't fix the border, don't repair that hole in the fence, don't do anything until I become president so that I can get credit for it. We don't want Joe Biden to get any credit for fixing things. This is about as... Um, as crass as it gets, Joe. Joe, thanks for the call. 18 minutes past the hour. Uh, Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's on your mind? Buenos dias, mi hermano. Yeah, buenos dias. Como esta? Como esta? Hey, uh, my question essentially is, when you're debating Trump supporters, if they were to get the dictator that they want, what would they actually get uh, for their money? For Let me give you an example here. Let's say that... Uh, that uh, Trump becomes their dictator. Are they going to get a Mussolini? Are they going to get a Ferdinand Marcos? Some other uh, M guy? Really what it gets down to is uh, we can see that Trump already thinks he's a dictator. So if, well, I don't want to repeat myself. I think you get the gist of what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. I think that what, uh, I, I, you know, I can't speak for Trump followers, but my sense of it is that what they would most delight in, 
and what Donald Trump and Steve Miller and Steve Bannon and you know all the other Steves around Donald Trump or all the other people around Donald Trump would would like is to see people like you and me, Chaz, in a concentration camp. I, I really think that that you know the you know Trump has said he wants to build camps for millions of people, and uh, including American citizens, and that he wants to shut down the media, that he's going to pull the license of MSNBC. He, uh, <laughs> I don't think they have a license, but whatever. But then, on the other hand, he also said he was going to lock up Hillary. He also said it was going to get big, beautiful health care. Nobody, would. he said, Mexico will pay for the wall. When it gets right down to it, what are they really going to get? And I don't think yeah. that we have an answer. But if I see you in concentration camp, uh, Tom, we'll we'll put our, our own little pirate radio program. <laughs> there you go. It's like like the uh, underground newspaper I published when I was in high school. I got got me kicked out of high school. <laughs> yeah. uh, good one, Chaz. Good uh, one. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot for the call. It's good to hear from you. It's 20 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls. I got to tell you what's going on in Russia here, and also what's going on in uh, Georgia, and and how similar these two things are. I'm talking about Georgia, USA, not not Georgia and Southern Europe. We'll be right back, 20 minutes past the hour. Stay with us. Change starts with you. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. the capital switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. So we have this major culture war going on in the United States. You've got Republicans trying to ban abortion. They're trying to ban books. Not just trying to. They're actually doing all of these things. Uh, banning books, banning trans uh, girls in sports. Uh, you know, attacking basically the entire queer community. You know, whatever they can to try to sow division and hate, promoting Nazi memes, talking about how, you know, uh, Jews are paying to have black and brown people replace white people and all this kind of stuff. Why are billionaires doing this? Why are they funding these people? I mean, billionaires don't care about crime. They live in, in gated communities with private security. They don't. They don't care about public schools. Their kids go to private schools. They don't care about public transportation. They fly in private jets. Oh, yeah, that's right. If they can get us fighting against each other, if they can get us hating each other, they'll, we will ignore their efforts to cut their taxes and deregulate their industries. There's a whole video about it at Tom.TV. Check it out. Twenty-two minutes past the hour. Our quote for the day. And uh, a tip of the hat to Sue Nethercutt for passing this along to me. This is a quote from Adolf Hitler. I expect the German legal profession to understand that the nation is not here for them, but they are here from the, for the nation. From now on, I shall intervene in these cases and remove from office those judges who evidently do not understand the demands of the hour. And he did. He got rid of a lot of judges. Sort of, uh, you know, exactly what Donald Trump would love to do here. Meanwhile, in Russia, the Russians are now arresting people for wearing, carrying, displaying, or even posting online little rainbow logos. You can't do that. The, uh, the, on Monday, a court in Saratov, Russia, handed a uh, fine to artist and photographer Ina Mosina 
over several Instagram posts depicting rainbow flags. She is uh, arguing that she posted them before the law went into effect, and they're saying it doesn't matter. You still, you still have to pay the fine. Last week, a court in uh, Nizhny Novgorod uh, ordered Anastasia Yershova to serve five days in jail on the same charge for wearing a rainbow-colored earring, wearing rainbow-colored earrings in public. In Volgograd, a court fined a man for allegedly posting a rainbow flag on social media. I mean, this, there's two pieces of legislation here. The one is in 2013, where they, the Kremlin adopted the first legislation restricting LGBTQ plus rights. They, this is known as the gay propaganda law, banning any public endorsement of, quote, non-traditional sexual relations, end quote, among minors. This is where they always start. Oh, we're just trying to protect the children. Remember Ron DeSantis? You know, we're, we're not going to teach children about, uh, about slavery and about black people and about gay people. If they're under third grade, that was the original don't, case say, don't say gay law. And then, of course, you know, once they put it into law, then they said, oh, well, let's just raise the age limit all the way up to 18, which, of course, is what the Kremlin has done. They've, in 2023, they passed another law that prohibits transitioning procedures for trans people. Uh, they amended Russia's family code by listing gender, gender change as a reason to annul a marriage and added those who have changed gender to the list of people who cannot become foster or adoptive parents. Now, that's Russia. Down in Georgia, an anti-LGBTQ plus bill fill, uh, filed last week in Georgia, which claims to be a women's bill of rights. Get this? I mean, this is, this is just like back in the, in the 50s and 60s. When, you know, I remember the, the, the white racists on the right saying, you know, those black people are coming to take your jobs, right? Well, trying to pretend that, you know, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're not really anti-black people. We're just pro-white people or something like that. Well, they're saying we're not really anti-gay. We're just pro-women. Right. This is House Bill 1128. It replaces the word gender with the word sex in several state laws and defines sex as the genitalia you were born with at birth. Several sections of the bill would rewrite portions of Georgia's hate crime laws to eliminate, this is Alex Bollinger, by the way, writing at lgbtqnation.com, to eliminate the term sexual orientation and eliminate the term gender from protected categories. So I don't know how you can say this is a bill that's going to protect women when you're uh, taking women out of hate crimes. You know, hate crimes no longer apply if you if you if you uh, you know beat up a woman or a gay person. That's no longer a hate crime in Georgia, right? This was introduced by state representatives Jody Lott, Republican; Lisa Hagan, Republican; Penny Houston, Republican; Bethany Ballard, Republican; and Kimberly New, Republican. It's interesting. Five women. Uh, the bill was flagged on X by uh, Allison Chapman, uh, who wrote, This is a super comprehensive bill stripping away rights from trans and queer people that does absolutely nothing for women. But, you know, this is, this is what Republicans do. They're, they're just kind of following on my earlier rant about they are trying to break our country. And one of the largest pieces of trying to break a country, and this is, again, this is what... Putin is doing in Russia right now, is pitting people against each other. Pit straight people against gay people, pit uh, men against women, pit races against each other, pit religions against each other. 
pit regions against each other? I mean, this is their strategy. Tear this country apart. And it's working. It's absolutely working. And, the, and you know, you've got this whole right-wing media machine that's, that's working as hard as it can to make it work. So what say you? I'll pick up your calls on the other side of this break. It's 27 minutes past the hour. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Sending America from the weapons of mass deception. I'll be right back with your calls. Today is How to Get Rid of a President by David Priest, and this is uh, from the chapter Rejected by the Party, uh, starting on page 12, kind of mid-chapter. Presidents need not be thrown out on the polls, at the polls on Election Day to find themselves dislodged from the White House. History shows us that a chief executive's own political allies can remove that incumbent when they perceive him as unpopular or unfit. Refusing to nominate a president for a second term, or better yet, getting the incumbent to realize that he should walk away before it becomes an embarrassing vote at the convention, does bring the party significant pain. But many politicians have calculated that discarding their own party's toxic president by internal action is better than waiting for the voters to do it. This dynamic remained absent for the first half century or so of American politics. George Washington, who didn't represent any formal party, set a precedent by stepping away from re-election after two terms. Successor after successor followed suit, keeping the support of their parties until they left office after eight years. Uh, ja Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and Jackson lost the next election, both Adamses and Van Buren, or met the Grim, Grim Reaper, Harrison. John Tyler, if only in this one respect, was a trendsetter. He began a six-president cascade of men who failed to appear on their party's ballot in the general election after their first term. One, Zachary Taylor, literally had no choice. Like Harrison, he died in office. The others, by staying alive through their four-year terms, could have carried their party's banners again on Election Day. Not one did, as national, national agonizing over slavery and other tensions within each of the major parties made it difficult for any president to build and sustain a governing coalition. Of those five chief executives, only James Polk left with a solid reputation and a ledger of successes. He told Democrats upon his nomination in 1844, I shall enter upon the discharge of the high and solemn duties of the office with the settled purpose of not being a candidate for re-election. And he stayed true to his word. It was just as well, only three months after what would have been his second inauguration, he died at the age of 53. The three presidents who followed Polk, the forgettable series of Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, and James Buchanan, shared three characteristics. First, histor historians routinely rank them among the nation's worst presidents. Second, and rel related to that, they took no responsibility re for resolving the national moral failure of slavery. And third, no matter how they had attained office, they, like future presidents Chester Arthur and Lyndon Johnson, found themselves spurned by their own parties. The Whigs had learned in 1840 that a celebrity candidate seemed to have an easier route into the White House than a party regular. So in 1848, they nominated General Zachary Taylor, a recent hero of battlefields in the Mexican-American War. Despite his lack of solid political principles or any apparent passion for the job, just two years earlier he'd said with apparent sincerity, I am not and never shall be an aspirant for that honor, 
Taylor won the election over Democratic candidate Lewis Hass, a uh, Cass, excuse me. In July 1850, he became the second straight Whig general to president who couldn't make it to the next election alive. Vice President Millard Fillmore took his place. Fillmore had risen to prominence in New York's anti-Mason party dedicated to exposing and opposing Freemason fraternal organizations, but switched allegiance to the Whigs in the 1830s. In the first year and a half of the administration, inter-party rivals had manipulated Taylor better than Fillmore did, leaving him little to do but preside over the Senate and stew over his fate in a useless job. But as president, he was prepared to avenge perceived slights. Ahead of their expected dismissal, all the cabinet members whom Fillard had inherited from Taylor offered their resignations, which were quickly accepted by the new president. He asked them to remain in place for one month. They agreed to stay for one week. Fillard, uh, Fillmore would proceed to fire more previous political appointees than any of his successors had. More than half of those at the State Department, for example, had to find new jobs. The biggest development during Fillmore's presidency was the Compromise of 1850. This set of bills admitted California to the Union as a free state, allowed the organization of the Utah and New Mexico territories without reference to slavery, resolved both the Texas state boundary and the Lone Star state's remaining debt, abolished the slave trade in the District of Columbia, and reaffirmed the fugitive slave law that required the returning of slaves escaped across state lines. Fillmore signed each bill, believing this package of measures had fixed what he considered an annoying issue that kept getting in the way of his other priorities. The compromise bills delayed a war between the states, but at a cost. They not only perpetuated slavery, but split the Whigs further apart, as most Northerners refused to abide by the fugitive slave law. Congressional elections in November 1850 increased the Democratic opposition's majorities in both the House and the Senate. The rest of the president's term was so bad that the highlight might have been the start of Commodore Matthew Perry's voyage to Japan to open that country to American trade, even though he didn't arrive until Fillmore left office. Not long after rising to become the chief executive, Fillmore declared he wouldn't run again in the 1852 election. He reiterated that in 1851. But the trappings of presidential power and the pleas of his remaining party faithful convinced him to retract that pledge and make a late entry into the field of candidates. He portrayed his about-face about as a noble personal sacrifice for the good of the party and the country. And during the spring of that election year, eight Whig state conventions endorsed him. As delegates gathered for what a leading historian of the era calls the longest, most rancorous, and most debilitating Whig national convention ever to meet, the first tally had Fillmore in the lead. How to get rid of a president. Hey, if you like the rants that I open the show with every day, they're typically published over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. So a lot of people are wondering, why is it in America that we can't have nice things? Why don't we have, you know, the same things every other democracy has. Every other democracy in the world has a national health care system of some form, and everybody is covered. We don't. We've got 27 million un uninsured people and over 100 million underinsured people. Why is that? Why is it that every other country in the world offers college education very inexpensively, if not for free, and for here you go to debt? Why is it that we've got our public schools crumbling and other, other countries are doing well? Why is it that we've got Medicare being taken apart by this Medicare Advantage scam and nobody will do anything about it? Well, it turns out the reason why has, it boils down to one 
thing, one Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, legalizing the bribery of our politicians. There's a whole rant about this over at, at uh, HartmanReport.com. I think you're, you're going to find it very, very useful. Check it out. Welcome back. 35 minutes past the hour. Picking up your calls here. What's on your mind today? Craig in Chicago. Hey, Craig, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you? Good. Hey, I, I, good. Hey, there, I wanted to bring up this issue about how it is, I think, that the Republicans or, are, are going to try to um, get over on this election. That they're not really trying to win the presidential election, but that they're trying to scuttle it so that it ends up in that uh, House process. Yeah. So Father Mike and all his traitors in the house then can just install whoever they want. Yep. And I was hoping to get the question in while the congressman was on to see what the guys, what the people in the house are thinking about this, right? Because because the Republicans currently have the tools to do it. Yeah. Right. They could be successful. Yeah. What we're talking about here, Craig, is if if. Um if this, if a, not, if, if a couple of states refuse to certify, or if a third-party candidate gets enough votes that there yep. may not be 270 certified votes for either candidate, in which case, under the 12th Amendment, the election gets thrown to the House of Representatives, where each state has one vote, and that vote is cast by their congressional delegation, and uh, 26 states are, you know, Republican-controlled delegations. Only 23 are democratically controlled. So, and then there's one is 50-50. So, if they could cause that to happen, they could actually successfully complete that right now. You're absolutely right, Craig. And uh, there are a number of people talking about this and concerned about it. Uh, I I think that, um, you know, generally speaking, Democrats are trying to avoid thinking about it. (laughs) But but it's uh, it's a serious issue. It's a a very real issue. And, you know, I, I, I just have a feeling that between now and and election day between now and the first week of November here, you know, later this year, we're going to see a lot of a lot of other shoes drop. There's going to be, you know, it's in it, it, there's got to be a bunch of movement because I'm not quite yeah. sure how what the next move or how to even defend against this. Yeah, which is what it, why I wanted to bring it up. Well, the way to defend against it is to change the laws to get rid of the electoral college, which would involve changing the constitution. And the problem with that is that requires two thirds of the House and Senate and three quarters of the states. And it ain't going to happen between now and November. Um, but, right. you know, it's something that should be put on the agenda if we can get a large enough Democratic majority. There was, a, uh, there was legislation in 1974, if my memory is serving me correctly. I've written about this. It's in my book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. There was legislation to end the Electoral College and just say, you know, whoever gets the most votes nationwide is president now going forward. And sure, it failed. Back. It failed by one vote in the House of Representatives. It passed the Senate, and, and uh, you know that was our that was the last times we had a chance because that was in the 70s, and nobody really thought the Electoral College was doing anybody any good. Well, now you've had two presidents, George W. Bush and Donald Trump, who lost the popular vote, who never would have been president if that law had passed, and instead were only right. put into the White House by the Electoral College. And suddenly, the uh, the GOP is in love with the Electoral College. So it's going to be a real battle to do anything about it. Craig, thank you for the call. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to ask, could the interstate compact be accelerated somehow to uh, uh, 
It depends on, you know, that that all depends on state laws. In in that case, each one of the states has to pass a law saying that we will give our electoral college votes to whoever gets the majority vote nationwide rather than to whoever gets the majority vote in our state. And uh, you've got, uh, you have to have enough states signed up to equal 270 votes. And so far they're at, what, around 220, if I'm if my memory is correct? Yeah, that's um, what I heard, 220, 226. Or yeah, something, something like, like that. that. It's in that neighborhood. So they've got a long way to go. And the problem is that they've pretty much done all of the blue states and most of the most of the purple states that might be willing to do this. So I'm not holding my breath for that either. Uh, certainly not in time yeah. for this election. Maybe, maybe two, three, four years down the road particularly if some of these uh, swing states or even some of the red states that are marginal, um, you know, for example, Texas and Georgia, um, both have the potential to flip blue if there's a large enough turnout in this election, particularly with abortion on the ballot. So we'll see. We'll see. But that's it's going to be a long term project. Craig, thank you for the call. Uh, Great to hear from you. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Hey, not too much, Tom. Hey, I'm in Troutdale today, by the way, just on business. Welcome to Portland. Yeah. Hey, the, um, I just wanted to say, um, uh, there was a caller earlier who said, um, what kind of dictator are the Trumpers expecting for their money? Mm-hmm. Look, none of, us, none of us know this. Trumpers don't even know. We don't know what direction the, uh, authoritarians are going to take. And um, frankly, I'm guilty. I'm the number one guilty person of comparing it to the Nazi party, okay? It's just my personal opinion. I've said it a million times. It's not helpful. But Rachel Maddow said it best the other day. She said, we are a country of one political party, the Democratic Party, and their main opponent, their main opponent is a single individual named Donald J. Trump. Mm. All right. And and that's way better than calling them Nazis. All right. Because that's really what we're getting to in America. And frankly, um, Tucker Carlson, you know, I think he is just a mouthpiece of the oligarchs. And I do think they prefer authoritarianism, just like you said. But he interviewed Vladimir Putin. Right. Which has gotten some uh, degree of fame and consternation by other journalists. But here's the thing, you know, he, he's a fraud. He needs to interview um, uh, Nadezhdin, Boris Nadezhdin, the only opponent really still standing, as far as I know, against Vladimir Putin. Right. And the reason why that's important is because he, is, he was a colleague of Boris Nemestov. And Nemestov was uh, deputy prime minister. But, but, but what happened in Russia is probably what's going to happen in America. Nemestov was a good Russian. All right. I mean, he was, he, he believed, you know, there were no problems there. He was a part of the system for years and years and years. But he learned something when, when Vladimir Putin paid off Dmitry Medvedev, his opponent, and they, they, they did a power sharing deal. Right. Uh, Nemstov figured out he was laboring under a lie that this was turnkey tyranny. And, and you, nobody has to take my word for it. They can, um, Zana Nemestova, his daughter, she does an excellent um, podcast, and she talks about it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing, but basically I think the man believed he was laboring under a lie. He protested, and he paid for his protest with his life. Yeah. All right? And this is, this is what I'm saying. Um, we, don't, we really don't know how this authoritarian system is going to mutate. And if, if Trump gets into office... We, as a country, we need to seriously start asking ourselves what kind of, if a president, if we have anybody that is immune from the law, above, outside the law, whatever, 
we need to start asking ourselves what kind of country we have. Yeah. We don't actually have a democracy. Well, and there's a, there's another like larger question here, too, and that is, you know, if Trump drops dead of a heart attack tomorrow, which way does the Republican Party go? Who, who steps up and becomes the leader of the Republican Party? Does the Republican Party, you know, cleave even harder toward the right, toward, you know, authoritarian fascism, or do they go back to the, 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 the old Mitt Romney kind of soft fascism? And I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question, Dave, but uh, you've, you've raised a bunch of good ones. Thank you very much. John in Rome, Georgia. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I just wanted to uh, talk to you about, you had the gentleman on yesterday that was talking about the uh, hidden uh, agenda in going on in Congress now to privatize uh, Social Security and privatize Medicare. Right. Um, my question is this, uh, you know, I'm 84 years old now. I've been drawing social security and Medicare for 19 years. Um, do these people not understand that everybody doesn't have a million dollar retirement fund? Uh, social security probably provides at least 50% of our retirement income. Right. Yeah, they, they, it's, not a, it's not a matter of what they realize, John. They, they just don't care. The people paying the bills for the, for the Republican Party are you know, wealthy, are, are right-wing billionaires. And they've got this whole libertarian rationale of, you know, the, the, Rush Limbaugh used to tell this joke. He delighted in it. He would say, what do you do with somebody when they're down? You kick them. Otherwise, they don't get up. This is their philosophy, you know, uh, you know, so people, you know, 60% of his income's coming from Social Security. Well, he'll figure out how to stand on his own two feet if we just take that away. I mean, that's how they think, John. Uh, well, it, you know, it would make it exceedingly difficult. I mean, fortunately, my wife and I have been married for 55 years. God bless you. And, and uh, it's been an, a good adventure, and, uh, you know, our home is paid for, but, you know, it's still, it's still a scary scenario. Yeah. Maybe not so much for people my age, but for younger people just starting paying Social Security. Yeah, the people who the Republicans really want to screw are the people who are, you know, under 50 right now, because they're, they realize that they, they, they can't afford to piss off the entire uh, you know, over 50 crowd because there's just too many, too many of us. John, I got to run, but thank you for the call. And, and uh, you know, I wish you well. Thank you. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Uh, married 55 years. That's wonderful. It's 45 minutes past the hour. Back with your calls in just a moment. And welcome back. Alan, in, uh, Alan, where are you calling from? I don't have a, a location here for you. I'm sorry. I'm from Alabama, sir. Okay. What's up, Alan? I just want to let you know I love your show. Watch it every day I can. Thank you. And uh, also, you know, I got the same concerns that the previous caller had about Social Security and all. I'm afraid if Trump gets in that we're going to be in trouble. You know, I'm 68. You know, I mean, I'm healthy. Well, I don't know how long we'll stay that way, of course, but I'm worried about what's going to happen to Social Security if he does get back in the office. Yeah, I want to know they, what I could do, being in a red state mainly, mm-hmm. that uh, 
that I could do to support our democracy, knowing that my representatives are all pretty much Republican. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. It's a tough one. But there are Democrats in Alabama, Alan, and, you know, I encourage you to get together with them. And, you know, in, in alliances, there are there is strength. Okay. You know, I mean, because I'm afraid if I call Washington that I'm going to go right to Barry Moore, you know, I mean, the Republican here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Have you have you reached out to your local Democratic Party? No, I have not, sir. That might be a good uh, good investment of some time. You know, find out when their next meeting is and go to it or zoom into it if you're reluctant to show up in person. And and because uh, th- that's that's where the action is is going to be. It's it's going to be your local Democratic Party. Yes, sir. Um, yes, sir. You can't hardly say anything in public here. Yeah. Or you get shot down very quickly. I totally get that. I I, <laughs> I totally get that. Alan, thank you for the call. I wish you the very best. Good luck. And if you figure out, you know, uh, any way to be a, a good proactive uh, person there in Alabama, well, you know, we've got Norma who, who calls in frequently. Who's, she just goes out to the supermarket and, and passes out literature and has conversations with people. I mean, there, there are things that can be done. Alan, thank you for the call. Diane in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hey, Diane, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, you were talking about historically what's been going on in our society, our country. And on YouTube, on Noam Chomsky uh, has a, a video, and it's produced beautifully. And it goes through um, the 10 uh, points of uh, the middle class crisis. And it shows how through the um, decades of, uh, start, well, actually, uh, John Madison um is uh, the one, or James Madison, I'm sorry, was one who said we, they keep, when they were, uh, you know, the, um, uh, our, what do you call it, our designers of our country, mm-hmm. said you can't give people too much democracy or they'll go after the rich and their prop- property because there were so much, so many more poor people than property. They feared the numbers. And, and this goes through one through 10, and there's about six minutes to each because it's done in an hour. Mm-hmm. And it takes you all of through history how uh, government was controlling the population. And uh, they wanted to shape ide- ideology to, um, uh, because they feared a backlash. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it goes uh, designing the economy and shifting the burden that's taxes from the rich to the poor and attacking solidarity, which, which is unions and caring for each other. Yep. And it's one hour long and it's easy to watch, very enjoyable, beautifully designed, and it'll take you through history. Great. Okay. Of, Diane, thank yeah. you. Thanks for the heads up on that. Uh, it's 49 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. Stay with us. support progressive radio if you're listening to us on a commercial station call their advertisers and let them know you're listening if you're listening to us on pacifica or one of our many nonprofit stations please support them when they do their fundraising drives thanks for supporting progressive talk radio and tag your it so maga mike and the republicans want a religious test for people running for public office they want to know that you are sufficiently christian to be worthy of being elected 
Right. MAGA Mike is one of these uh, seven mountain evangelicals. There are seven domains where these dominionists believe that we need to have religion completely take them over. Education, religion, family, business, government, military, arts and entertainment, and the media. Seriously. This is not what Jesus was preaching when he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto, unto God what is God's. This is the opposite, in fact, of what Jesus was teaching. It's the opposite of Matthew 25, where Jesus said, the only way to get to heaven is by feeding the hungry, healing the sick, helping the poor. It's, this is counter-Christian, anti-Christian, in fact. In fact, I think you could say it is the Antichrist's work. There's a piece about it over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Nine minutes before the hour, picking up your calls here. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, Tom. I know I, I, I'm singing that same song about how the government's been, uh, the power brokers have been tanking this country on purpose to soften us up to accept authoritarianism. I just thought maybe I was becoming a conspiracy nut until I heard you sing it today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's. You gave uh... me some validity. But what I'm worried about is Trump's already had Oracle set up an algorithm. So he can plug it in and go through all the communications of the people that they want to install in this 2025 thing to make sure they're, they're loyal to Trump. And it'll bring up any of their communications, whether it be phone, email, text, whatever. Social media, yep. Yeah, so now he's already got this algorithm, and they're using it. Yep. So if he gets into power, what's to stop him from going down to that massive computer bank they have down in Utah where they start everybody's communications for 10 years and plugging it into that and getting a list of everybody in the country he wants to have at least investigated, if not rounded up. Yeah. I, you know, Mark, I'm going to sneeze. Pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they are right now, the Heritage Foundation is apparently, or some group associated with them, are apparently trying to come up with 20,000 people that are pre-vetted, that on January 20th or 21st, they can just, you know, plug right into the government. Um, you know, the first day, Trump will put his Schedule J back in there, or Schedule F back into place, which will, you know, lay off or fire the, 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 the top management of, uh, you know, across the civil service and uh, turn it into... Uh, basically a patronage position. Um, you know, we did away with this in the 1880s uh, because uh, after Garfield was assassinated because he, he didn't hire a guy who wrote a speech for him. Um, you know, the guy came back and killed him. And, and uh, because back then you did things for the president and in exchange, the president gave you a job. So to end that, it was that spoil system or patronage system. They, they created the civil service. Well, you know, Trump and the Heritage Foundation and Project 2025 apparently want to do away with that and go back to the old spoil system. So, uh, yeah, I, I see that as a very real possibility, Mark. In fact, I think that it's something that they're frankly bragging about. They're, they're excited about. So we'll see. Mark, thanks for the call. Regina in Chicago. Hey, Regina, what's up? Hi, Tom. Uh, can you hear me? I'm in my car. Yeah, no, I... I Faintly, but I can hear you. Just speak loud. What's up? Okay. Um, when you was, I just got in the car. I heard the tail end of you talking about what the Republicans are going to do with these new laws against gay people and trans. You know, the whole right. generation. Right. Down in Georgia, yeah. So, 
a story just to share. My mother was a nurse, and, and going through some of her class books when we were kids growing up is the first time I became aware of people that could be born with the wrong genitalia and things like that. Yep. And my mother talked to us and explained things to us. My mother raised us to be accepting of things in the world. And when we were young, she took us to go see the Jewel Box Review because it was the thing to do at the time. It was a fabulous show, and she took us to plays and things like that. I didn't turn out to be a wrong person just because I went to go see the Jewel Box Review. And I think with so much that's going on today and with so many people in the Republican Party or whatever, the, the, Mag, the Magnoites or whatever we call them, I think the lack of knowledge and acceptance breeds, helps to breed fear. Yes. And fear is, and, is their um, weapon. Yes. And, and, and um, so it, 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 I've been thinking and listening to you. I'm out here struck, you know, the Republicans are some very dangerous people. Not only Trump, all Republicans. We got to look at Nikki Haley, too. We can't just look, focus on one person. We have to talk against their so-called views and values and stuff like that. Yep. But, I, you know, that's all. I just wanted to say that to you, you know. Do you know what the Jewels Box Review was? No, I don't. Was okay, the Jewel Box Review was, I guess, what you would call today um, the the queens, you know. Oh, the a drag show. Men who dra drag show. It was yeah. an early, early drag show uh -huh, cool. that toured this nation. Uh -huh. And it was a fabulous show. To any of your listeners, look it up, the Jewel Box Review. And they, they toured for years. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it's, 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 it's wonderful that your mother took you to that and that you've grown up to be a tolerant, loving person. I really think the superpower that the Republicans have, it's sort of like, you know, in, in Lord of the Rings, you know, that ring had this, this supernatural power to draw people in. And I think that, you know, what they're doing, their supernatural power is hate. And, you know, hate against people of color, hate against queer people, hate against women, hate against, uh, you know, non-Christian religions, or even some Christian religions they want to hate against. I think it's a real tragedy. Regina, Regina thank you so much for, for a very thoughtful commentary. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. If you're a corporate employee, you know that something unpleasant is afoot when top executives are suddenly issuing statements about how committed they are to their employees, making sure that all of them are treated with dignity and respect. For example, the PR chief of a global outfit named Teleperformance, one of the world's largest call centers, was recently going on and on about how, quote, we value our people and their well-being, safety, and happiness. Why did the corporation feel such a desperate need to proclaim its virtue? Because it's been caught in a nasty scheme to spy on its own workers. Teleperformance, a $6.7 billion global behemoth that handles customer service calls for Amazon, Apple, Uber, etc., saves money on overhead by making most of its 380,000 employees around the world work from their own homes. 
That can be a convenience for many workers, but a new corporate policy first imposed in March on thousands of its workers in Colombia is an Orwellian nightmare. Teleperformance is pressuring them to sign an eight-page addendum to their employee contracts, allowing corporate-controlled video cameras, electronic audio devices, and data collection tools to be put in their homes to monitor their actions. I work in my bedroom, one employee noted. I don't want to have a camera in my bedroom. Neither would I, and I doubt that Teleperformance's $20 million a year CEO would allow one in his mansion. Uglier yet, the privacy obliterating contract requires that even the children of employees can be spied on at home. Nonetheless, the Colombian worker signed because her supervisor said her supervisor said she could lose her job if she refused. Of course, Teleperformance Inc. assures us that the data it collects on children is not shared elsewhere. But how do we know that? Trust us, they say. This is Jim Hightower saying, do you? to X-Ray FM. It's KXRY Portland, 91.1 and 107.1 FM in Portland, 91.7 FM on the coast, Nehalem, Wheeler, Manzanita, Rockaway Beach, online and on demand at xray.fm. And hey, we're back on the air. I want to just give a little bit of an update. There was a big fire across the street from us. Uh, took out power to the building, took out our internet service. Uh, looks to have completely destroyed the building next door, which is uh, really unfortunate. Uh, I don't want to give uh, a lot of information about it because I don't really know. So I don't want to give out any wrong info, but that's why we were off the air. And what happened um, was just kind of the, the block was shut down due to that fire. But we're back and all systems appear to be normal. So that's great news. Uh, hope everybody, you know, or I guess I should say thank you, everybody, for kind of rolling with us being off air for a few hours there you know through the morning program and and the first bit of tom hartman but we'll be back or we are back we'll be back to normal thanks for sticking around and tuning into x-ray all day tom will be back in just a moment Rick Smith.
And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That day marked a pivotal moment in the continuing Flint sit-down strike. The nationwide strike against GM started in Flint, Michigan in late December. By late January, UAW organizers agreed that nearby Chevy engine plant number four had to be shut down. It was a massive facility. It employed 4,000 workers on two ships. The plant superintendent had been firing union activists. Armed guards patrolled every inch of the facility to prevent a sit-down. Union organizers knew there were company spies in their ranks. They planned the takeover by staging distracting job actions at nearby Chevy plants number nine and then number six. This would draw the guards away from plant number four. And so on this day, just as the day shift was ending, workers sat down at Chevy plant number nine. The company guards were ready to launch an attack. They began beating and gassing the sit-downers. The women's emergency brigade smashed plant windows to dissipate the gas. The diversion worked. Guards left Chevy number four unattended. Workers then turned off all the machines and barricaded themselves in. The plant guards tried to re-enter and were met with pistons, connector rods, and fire hoses. The Women's Emergency Brigade gathered outside the plant and locked arms. UAW organizer Joe Sayan announced, quote, We want the whole world to understand what we are fighting for. We are fighting for freedom and life and liberty. This is our great opportunity. What if we should be defeated? What if we should be killed? We have only one life. That's all we can lose, and we might as well die like heroes than like slaves. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. Support for X-Ray FM comes from P-Town Couriers, LLC, a local bicycle food delivery company delivering to the Portland metro area in an hour or less. More information and a list of local eateries they work with can be found at pdxccc.com. This is Ross Beach, host of Alive with Pleasure on X-Ray FM. Tune in Friday afternoons from 2 to 4 for concert previews, new releases, and other radical sounds. That's Alive with Pleasure, 2 to 4 p.m. Fridays on X-Ray FM. Radio is yours. Are you a parent of a child younger than six? Did you make less than $30,000 last year? If so, you may qualify for a new Oregon tax credit. The Oregon Kids Credit can be worth up to $1,000 per child. But to claim it, you must file a tax return. Filing a tax return not only allows you to claim the Oregon Kids Credit, but other tax credits for families worth thousands of dollars. To find free tax filing assistance, call 211-INFO by dialing 211. So if you're a parent of a young child and are struggling to make ends meet, be sure to claim the Oregon Kids Credit. And remember, the deadline to file a tax return is April 15. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome to the third hour of our program. A lot to talk about here. Ron Wyden, this is interesting. Ron Wyden is my senator here from, you know, from Oregon. He's in the United States Senate, uh, which at the moment, by the way, is voting on this uh, doomed border deal that they had put together at the insistence of Republicans, keep in mind, right? Uh, the National Security Supplemental. 
Um, but anyhow, Ron Wyden has been looking into Harlan Crow. Harlan Crow, of course, is the right-wing billionaire who is uh, not only funding um, Republicans, but uh, and and Clarence Thomas famously, you know, bought Clarence Thomas's mother's house and put Clarence Thomas's kid through school and and uh, took Clarence Thomas on millions of dollars worth of vacations. But uh, you know, is also funding, uh, according to press reports, uh, a, a major funder of no labels which may be, you know, the secret weapon that the Republicans have this year. They, they know that Don, there's no way Donald Trump could beat Joe Biden in an actual matchup. But if they could peel enough votes away from Biden with a third-party candidate, with Joe Manchin or Bobby Kennedy or whoever, then maybe they can do it, right? They're going to try this. So anyhow, that's, that's, um, that's Harlan Crow, and, and he's got this yacht. It's called the Michaela Rose. And... On his tax filings, he's showing that his yacht, or the company that ha owns his yacht, has lost $8 million on it. And yet, also in his filings and in his uh, registration of the vehicle, he claims that it's purely a pleasure vehicle, that it's never used for business. Well. You know, it, it, think about this in terms of cars, for example. You know, you might have known somebody uh, who was a, a, a salesperson who had to drive a lot. Well, you know, you can deduct some of the expenses associated with your car if you have to drive for work. You can deduct, uh, you know, mileage. You can deduct depreciation, wear and tear. You can deduct repairs, uh, you know, depending on how you do it and how you organize it. But basically, you know, if you're using your car in your business, it becomes a tax deductible expense. But he's, and so he's got this yacht that he takes Clarence Thomas and Jenny Thomas out on. And he's saying, you know, it's a business. We lost $8 million. But at the same time, he's saying, no, it's not a business. Uh, it's just purely for pleasure. And so Ron Wyden wrote him a letter saying, the tax code makes abundantly clear that the use, use of a super yacht for personal purposes is not a legitimate business use. And therefore, any related cost cannot be claimed as a deduction. Any effort to characterize a yacht used as a pleasure craft as a business is a run-of-the-mill tax scam, plain and simple. And then he goes on, Ron Wyden goes on to say, you know, your prior uh, responses to this committee have not, <laughs> uh, have done nothing to address the committee's concern. The personal trips to host friends such as Justice Thomas aboard the McKellar Rose have been used to help Mr. Crow avoid or evade paying federal taxes. Additionally, the committee has obtained significant new evidence that the McKellar Rose was not registered with the appropriate maritime authorities as a yacht engaged in trade and transporting charter passengers for hire. This directly undermines claims Mr. Crow has made to various branches of the federal government that the McKellar Rose was a commercial vessel engaged in for-profit yacht chartering activities. Very strange stuff. Remember last week when uh, New Hampshire had their primary and there was that robocall that went uh, all over the state? Apparently some 20,000 20, or more people got this call, 25,000 robocalls saying, uh, I'm Joe Biden and I'm telling you not to vote because I want you to save your vote. Don't waste it. Save your vote for the general election. And it turns out that it was a couple of guys down in Texas who did this. It was two companies, Life Corporation and Lingo Telecom. And uh, they have launched the uh, Attorney General of New Hampshire, who is a Republican. His name is John Formella. <laughs> Excuse me, told CBS News. 
He has launched a criminal investigation into Life Corporation owner Walter Monk. Um, he said the concert, this is what Formella said, this is the, the Attorney General, the, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer for the state of New Hampshire. He said the consequences to your action will be severe. We don't want it to be the first of many. We want this to be an example for us to point to, but also an enforcement example for us to anyone who would consider to do the same thing. So, huh, maybe some nervous people down in, uh, down in, in uh, Texas right now? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where this goes. Meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump is uh, possibly facing another challenge to his ballot eligibility. This from New York State. That would be a blow, right? Uh, Courthouse News Service reported that New York State Senator Brad Hoylman Segal and New York City Council members Shikar Krishnan and Gertrude Fiddleston filed a complaint late Tuesday challenging Trump's placement on the ballot. They're saying that, you know, he engaged in an insurrection. Uh, and they, the Board of Elections, this is from their letter, right? The Board of Elections can still uphold the United States Constitution by sustaining our objection and disqualifying Donald Trump from the presidential ballot. Should the Board of Elections fail to do their duty and rule Trump ineligible, I will see them in court. And they go on to talk about the 14th Amendment is unambiguous and Trump committed this crime and, you know, we've got to do something about this and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, Janine Pirro, Fox News, has called Joe Biden a wuss uh, because, uh, I don't know, but, you know, this was after the drone strike that killed three people, three Americans in Jordan. Well, you know, Biden has now launched something like 50 attacks against these people, against these Iranian-backed uh, people. But uh, nonetheless, Perot said, uh, the truth is the man just does not project. He does not project confidence. He doesn't project strength. But the bottom line is, you know, when Trump killed Soleimani, that was the end of it. They didn't respond. They knew Trump was serious. And then Jessica Tarlow points out, no, they did respond when kid Trump killed Soleimani. Two American service members were hit by a missile and died after Soleimani. Well, somehow that had just gotten lost over on the Fox News machine, the, 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 the Fox Noise machine. All right, let's pick up your calls. What's on your mind today? Richie Z in Chicago. Hey, Richie, what's up? Number one, I want to thank you for being on the air. I've been listening to you for many years. Uh, thank you because a long time ago, I don't know how many years ago, but I was planning on changing to this advantage thing. And I didn't do it because of Tom Hartman. And I've been through... 14 surgeries, cancer, tumors, and everything else in the last 10 years. But this Friday, I'm going for brain surgery. I have two tumors on the back of my head. And I asked the doctors, I said, what, what if I had that Advantage program? And I'm going to one of the best hospitals, University of Chicago, you know, for my surgery Friday morning. And they said, if you had that chances are we would not be able to take you. Wow. So thank you, Tom Hartman. May God and his angels be with you forever to bring the word out for the people. Well, thank you, Richie. I'll take all the blessings I can get. That was very kind of you. Um, and, and I wish you the very best in your surgery. That's the, you know, brain surgery. They're going in to do a biopsy to find out what it is because I had a tumor on the 
left side of my brain, and they zapped it with radiation two and a half years ago. Uh -huh. But this is on the back of my head, and you cannot zap that. You have to find out what it is. So yeah. they're going to get a biopsy and then treat me from there. Well, good luck, Richie. I, I wish you the very best. Sending, sending light and, and, and good vibes to you. Richie, thank you for the call. Thank you for your kind comments. 14 minutes past the hour. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the place where despair is not an option. I'll be right back with your calls in just a moment. And welcome back. Max in Germany. Wow, a bunch of international calls today. Hey, Max, what's on your mind today? Well, I wanted to mention something about the 12th Amendment. Go for and, it. Um, okay. I know a lot of people are freaking out about uh, the one vote per state, mm -hmm. and that's true. But if you keep reading in the same sentence, the Democratic Party members could stop that in a second. Because you have to have a quorum. And the quorum is two-thirds of the states. So the Democrats could simply just walk out, deny a quorum, and that would stop that in its tracks. So maybe pass that on to the next congressperson you have on your show to read, it, read the rest of the sentence. Yeah. It's in there. So, I mean, I've got it right in front of me. And, I'm looking uh, for it. on page 24 on your little pocket yeah, constitution, no, I, if you have one, yeah. which I think you've mentioned you do. Yeah, I do. I'm, in and fact, I'm looking at one right now. And um, Okay, go down at the bottom of the page. And oh, yeah, a quorum for the purpose shall the consist of two-thirds of the whole number of senators, and a majority of the whole number shall be necessary to a choice. Huh. Right. And, and the same thing, if you read on, is for the Senate choosing the vice president. So the same thing. You yeah. have to have a quorum, has to be two-thirds. So that, uh, Now, when they're holding that, the Democratic Party, if they were uh, organized a bit, they could simply say, I mean, when it happens, if it happens, uh, Pamela, uh, Kamala Harris will be the one uh, holding the chair. Mm -hmm. So she could simply wait while the uh, Democratic members walk out, deny a quorum, and then would have to do something else, wouldn't we? Fascinating. Fascinating. That, well, thank so, you for that, Ed. Or Max, excuse me. I, I, yeah, I, did. I got two other things I want to say quickly to you. Sure, from go in for it. The medical system here is privatized too. It's not as you remember. Yeah, I know. It's not as it's not as good as you remember. It's privatized. I pay over eight hundred euros a month for my insurance, and I could not get on the German system because I came here when I was over fifty five years old. Wow. So there's there's quirks here too. Yeah. Yeah. And then one last thing. Mm -hmm. As much as I hate Ronald Reagan, uh, he did not take those solar panels off. Check it out. Okay, that's it. He did Bye. not. Who did? He did not. He let them. He let them go till they had to be taken down. But he didn't order them taken off. So if you're talking to your Republican buddies like I do sometimes, they point this stuff out to me. Okay. All right. So, okay. Yeah. Take care. Max, Bye. thanks a lot. Good to hear from you, Peach in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Peach, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I was calling to talk about the guy in Alabama mm -hmm. who called just a little bit ago mm -hmm. and give him give him some hope. Um, please have him connect with the local poor people's campaign. Oh, I would yeah. love to love to, to get Reverend Dr. Barber on your show again 
Um, now's the time with, with this Project 2025 gearing up. People need to know that there's a counterweight, not just to Project 2025 and not just to the Christian nationalist horrendous. Uh, I'm Episcopalian, and those people are really scary. Yeah. Um, but the Poor People's Campaign is organizing all the the poor and low-wage workers and people that support them and against vote suppression, again, all kinds of militarism and ecological yeah. injustice. Oh, you're absolutely you right. Know, I, you know, I, I correspond with, uh, with Reverend Barber. We'll have to reach out to him and get him back on the program. It's been a few months since he's been on. Thank you, Peach. That, that's a brilliant suggestion. Thank you very much. And hopefully our, our caller is still listening. It's 19 minutes past the hour. I'll be right back with your calls. Missed my opening rant today? It's usually published over at HartmanReport.com, where you can read it and share it with your friends for free. Check it out, HartmanReport.com. Right now, we have the most extreme Supreme Court since the 1930s. And one of the main reasons is because these justices, A, have lifetime tenure, and B, in the 1990s, after a series of disappointments with William Brennan and Earl Warren and David Souter and you know a few others that have been nominated by Republicans, um, these justices tend to become more liberal once they're given lifetime tenure. So now we've got right-wing billionaires throwing gifts at them, emoluments, so speaking fees. Um, a, a, a John Roberts' wife made 10 million bucks, you know, hooking people up with law firms. All the Republicans on the court are in on the grift. And it's really not so much designed to thank them for what they're doing, but to keep them conservative. Because in the past, Republican appointees have turned liberal. They're not going to let that happen. There's a whole rant about this over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Twenty minutes past the hour, picking up your calls. What's on your mind today? AJ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Hey, AJ, what's on your mind today? What's up? Good to hear from you, Tom. I appreciate your show. Thank I you. just have a question I want to ask you. Uh, Joe Biden swore to uphold the Constitution. How can he turn power over to someone who has engaged in an insurrection? How can he do that and, and still do his duty? Well, he doesn't turn the White House over to uh, if Trump were to win and if Trump were to be sworn in. It's not Joe Biden who's turning the White House over to him. It's uh, uh, arguably it's Congress, uh, you know, which has to certify the vote. And it's the chief justice of the Supreme Court that has to swear him in. Um, uh, well, Biden has nothing to do with the process. Well, couldn't Biden uh, declare martial law and stop it? You know, Trump tried to do that. He fired the uh, the guy at the White House who was the who was the uh, the valet or whatever who opens the front door. So when Joe and Jill showed up, you know, to to take occupancy of the White House, the front door was locked and there was nobody there to let him in. Um, you know, <laughs> Trump tried, but no, there's 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 no way to do that, to the best of my knowledge. So, thank you. Okay, good talking to you, AJ. Thank yeah. you for the call. Uh, Ed in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. Wow, the third country to call today. Hey, Ed, what's up? Oh, not a whole lot. Good to good to listen to you all the time. Or when I get Thank the you. opportunity, though, I guess I'm an alarmist. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm screaming loud. Yeah, what these Republicans are up to. I mean, 
Not a guy I know. We're friends, talked on the phone for years, and he tells me the other day, well, I have a different set of facts that I work from than you do. And I said, that's interesting, you know. Let's have a little discussion about critical thinking, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he's got that all rationalized away. Like it. <laughs> anyway, uh, I actually I told the guy that I was thinking about how are they going to, when are they going to come after these representatives and a few senators who were in on this thing? Right. And, you know, I can't believe that now the Heritage Foundation is, uh, you know, helping out Trump's people with all this preliminary. Yeah, they've got a new president who's, well, new a couple of years ago, but uh, they've got a new president who's very much Trumpy. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's loving all things Trump. Which is kind of surprising. I mean, well, although Jim DeMint, who used to run the Heritage Foundation, went off and now he's running a right-wing, you know, uh, super PAC of some kind or think tank or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, the speech and debate clause is going to make this particularly difficult. And I don't know if that's the reason why the Department of Justice has been so reluctant to go after members of Congress. There is a provision in the Constitution that says that members of Congress, when they are in in Congress, when they're when they're doing their work, cannot be held to account under any laws in the United States. Uh, you know whether they they beat each other up. I mean that happened. Roger Griswold caned. Um, oh, I'm forgetting the guy's name. Uh, Matthew Lyon, uh, yeah. back back in uh, 17, 1790, whatever it was. And uh, you know you can't be held responsible for that. You can't be held responsible for slander or for conspiracy or for anything. Basically, if you're a member of Congress. So I'm guessing that the speech and debate clause is, is the thing that's slowing them down, although it's never been tested. It's never been, you know, it's never been uh, adjudicated. It's never gone through the Supreme Court. So, but that's my best guess, Ed, I, I, other than the possibility that, you know, Merrick Garland is just a wimp. I mean, here we are watching this slow motion and seemingly, you know, from all indications, that's why I say I'm an alarmist, mm-hmm. this successfully chipping away at, you know, all these Democratic uh, features that make us who we are. Yep. And, uh, you know, I talk to people who say, uh, well, yeah, maybe, you know, an authoritarian approach, uh, you know, maybe we need to try that. I'm just going, wait a minute. I mean, yep. Yep. yeah, I'm well, becoming alarmist. Yeah, that's, that's the appeal hey. of dictatorship is that, you know, they get things done. And that's why I say, you know, the, in my opinion, the Republicans have intentionally broken our system because they want to replace our system with with oligarchy, you know, with autocracy, with strongman government, and and you know, and the rich in charge, the morbidly rich in charge, and and the way you That's do that, what's happening? Yeah, exactly. And the way you do that is you break things so that people start demanding somebody to come in and fix what's broken. No, 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 no. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, that's, you know, it's really shameful. I mean, that's why these people ought to be drummed right out of town. As I agree. As far as I'm concerned, I agree. they're and not, or at, not at, American. Yeah, not at American. the very least, they should be in front of a grand jury. I'm with you, Ed. I I, I really am, but uh, but I'm not seeing any motion in that direction. Ed, i got to move along, but thank you for the call, and thanks for listening to us or watching us down there in the Virgin Islands in St. Thomas. Uh, Ragnar in uh, Mount Vernon, Washington. Hey, Ragnar, what's <clears> up? Hello, Tom. Another Viking again. Indeed. <laughs> 
Anyway, I grew up under Hitler dictatorship in Norway, you know, Second World War. I was pretty young, but some of the memories are, you know, pretty frightening. Mm-hmm. First of all, we had, you know, we had all of us had to have our window blinds closed. We couldn't open them at any time. They took our radios away, and if they were caught hiding your radio away, they would be hauled away, and God knows what, you know, the Germans did to the, to the Norwegian citizens. They didn't allow us to be outside after 8 p.m., and our traumatized parents, who in turn traumatized their children by their actions, you know, it was just a horrendous way to live. So, mm-hmm. anyway, I'm not sure if that would happen in this country if Trump or whoever gets in there wants to be a dictator, but it's, it's a hell on this earth to live under those conditions. So, anyway, I thought I'd pass that on, and uh, hopefully people will see what or hear, you know, that what could happen uh, under those conditions. Well, thank you for your testimony, your, your witness, Ragnar. Um it it is a big concern and trump has said that he's going to do a lot of those things he he wants to shut down the media he wants to build concentration camps for millions of americans he wants to put people from the media like me in those concentration camps and you know presumably he wants to come after people like you too ragnar thank you for the call and thanks for sharing your personal experience that's a, that's a powerful testimonial it's 27 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with your calls on the other side of this break. It's the Tom Hartman program. Talk media for the sane among us. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. Taking back the mainstream media three hours a day, five days a week, right here. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today's book in our book club is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, by this guy, Tom Hartman. Uh, This is from Chapter 1, or from the introduction, actually. In 2016, 6% of Americans who were eligible to vote nominated Donald Trump as the GOP's presidential candidate. It was 8% for Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Trump went on to be elected president by 26% of eligible voters. The modern American oligarchs have largely stayed in power using three simple elements. Explicit and overt racism, massive disinformation campaigns, and voter suppression. No ideas, no push for better schools, hospitals, airports, roads, or bridges, or reform of our health, energy, or financial systems. No promise of more and better jobs. None of these staples of past presidential campaigns can be found in pretty much any Republican advertising today. Instead, the public Republican message is all about race, or the subset of race, religion. Muslim stands in for brown Arab in GOP speak, and immigration, a.k.a. brown people from south of our border, and socialism. Meanwhile, Republican secretaries of state across the nation are vigorously purging voters from the rolls. Over 17 million, more than 10% of America's active voters, in just the 2016-2018 period, according to NBC News. After the, <clears throat> excuse me, after the five Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 14 GOP-controlled states moved within a year, some within days, to restrict access to the vote, particularly for communities of color, students, and retired people. In North Carolina, for example, 158 polling places were permanently closed 
in the 40 counties with the most African-American voters just before the 2016 election, leading to a 16% decline in African-American early voting in that state. An MIT study found that nationwide, Hispanic voters wait 150% longer in line than white voters, and black voters can expect to wait 200% longer in line to vote. In Indiana, then-Governor Mike Pence's new rigorous voter ID law caused an 11.5% drop in African-American voting. Students are suing for their right to vote, and retired people who no longer drive but care passionately about their Social Security and Medicare are being turned away at the polls by the hundreds of thousands because their driver's licenses have expired. The obvious failure of 40-plus years of Reaganomics and GOP policies to maintain a functional middle class in America has been a problem for the modern GOP. In 1974, for example, the GOP had outright control of only seven states. The message, elect us and we'll help the rich people, just didn't generally resonate with American voters. It's the reason why, outside of the fluke elections of 46 and 52, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives outright for three generations, from 1933 to 1996, and controlled the Senate for most of that time. Desperate to win the presidency for the GOP in 1968, Richard Nixon went so far as to commit treason by torpedoing a peace deal with President Lyndon Johnson uh, that that President Lyndon Johnson had worked out with the North and South Vietnamese. According to Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, then president of Iran, Ronald Reagan did the same thing by cutting a deal with Iran whereby they would hold on to the U.S. Embassy hostages until after the 1980 presidential election torpedoing Jimmy Carter's chances of re-election. But in 2000, the GOP changed tactics. After Reagan was almost busted for his part in Iran-Contra, he testified that he had forgotten about details of the program more than 80 times his growing Alzheimer's spared him an indictment. They realized that getting busted for treason wasn't worth the risk. They needed a plan B. And it was deliciously simple. If most voters don't like what you're selling, then just don't let them vote. Paul Weyrich promoted this idea back in 1980 when he was campaigning for Reagan after co-founding the Heritage Foundation. And indeed, many Republican luminaries, such as William Rehnquist, who went from serving the GOP by standing in polling places and intimidating Hispanic and Native American voters in the 1960s to becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, rose up through the ranks by participating in Republican-run voter intimidation schemes. Voter suppression became the foundational go-to tactic for the GOP in 2000. Although the GOP attacked Democratic presidential nominee Al Gore with smear and innuendo, ridiculing him for helping write the legislation that created the modern internet, for example, the main thing that got George W. Bush into the White House was voter suppression. His brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Bush's Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, threw somewhere between 20,000 and 90,000 African-American voters off the rolls. They were able to get the vote close enough that five Republican appointees to the Supreme Court functionally awarded Bush the presidency. The BBC covered this in 2001 in two major investigative reports that were seen all over the world except on any American media. By 2016, the Republican Party had fine-tuned its voter suppression and intimidation systems to the point that they ran like well-oiled machines in nearly 30 states. Between the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections, for example, Ohio had purged more than 2 million voters from its rolls, the vast majority, more than 2 to 1, in heavily African-American and Hispanic counties. The five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court ruled in 2017 that they could keep it up, 
and other states have since adopted their new tactic of caging voters. The book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, by me. From international trade policy to immigration policy to housing, we've got all kinds of topics. The wars between Republicans and Democrats, the Republican efforts to induce fascism in the United States. A great selection of opinions will be found over at HartmanReport.com. Back in 2010, when Viktor Orban took over the Fidesz party in Hungary, uh, that party was sort of like the Republican party. It was just a conventional conservative European political party. And he has turned it into a neo-fascist powerhouse. Um, he, they, he pushed through, the, he altered the nation's constitution to push through what we would call gerrymandering and voter suppression so that his party will always win. He campaigned on building a wall. Build a wall was literally one of his campaign slogans. And he did build a wall across the southern border of Hungary to, to keep out Syrian refugees who were fleeing the, the violence when Russia was bombing that country. Um, his other two campaign slogans were, and I quote, restore Christian purity and make Hungary great again. Seriously, back in 2010, six years before Trump, there's an amazing backstory about how Viktor Orban is being cloned, essentially, in the GOP. You can find the article over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Welcome back. 35 minutes past the hour, picking up your calls here. Alan in DeKalb, Illinois. Hey, Alan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Great show as always. Thank you. Is it DeKalb or DeKalb? It's actually DeKalb. Okay. So what's up, Alan? Yeah. So what I wanted to say is that I think that uh, Biden should revisit the idea of declaring a no-fly zone over Ukraine for two reasons. So one is obviously it would give him a way to go around the Republican obstruction in Congress for funding Ukraine. That's that's a big one. But two, I believe that if uh, we had a no-fly zone over Ukraine, it would force America to cross swords with Russia, which would make it really tough for our pro-fascist autocratic MAGA types to continue openly supporting Ukraine. You mean openly supporting Putin? Or, uh, yes, openly supporting Putin. It'd almost be the same thing that FDR did. Because With, we had a we had a very pro fascist movement back in FDR's day, and then once we got in, involved in World War II, it forced our pro fascist movement to cross swords with Germany's pro fascist movement. Right, and they had to shut up and 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 get quiet. But uh, I don't think that starting World War III is the best way to shut up the right wingers in America. That one, respectfully, you know, we're getting to a point where we need to distract them with something. Because if we don't stop them from looking inwardly at an enemy with them looking outwardly at an enemy, we mm -hmm. could be in real trouble in this next election cycle. Yeah. And I know how draconian that sounds. I get it. Yeah. But these are desperate times. Well, there, there is a, a long history of uh, people, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the Roman Empire is probably the most famous collection of stories of leaders doing this, but... Um, that uh, Edward Gibbons, I think, uh, the rise and fall of the third. No, no, the, uh, the the history of the Roman Empire. I forget the title, but um, 
you know, that, that he talks about when, when things would go bad in the country, the emperor would figure, the Caesar would figure out, you know, some external war to have, come up with some new enemy and go off and conquer some new land. Uh, there's an argument made that uh, the king of France was all gung-ho for the Crusades, you know, in the 1100s because of domestic problems. Um, you know, and that, that was yeah. a way of getting the malcontents out of France and off to the Middle East. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I understand your I logic. Really believe, I believe FDR did the same thing, in a sense. I think events kind of did that for him. I mean, you know, he, he, I realize there are Republicans who think he provoked Pearl Harbor, but uh, I'm skeptical. But, yeah. But, I mean, Trump, Trump was always good at white rabbits, and in a sense, this would be one giant white rabbit. I mean, yeah, if America had a, to concentrate on an external enemy... I think we could we could maybe bury our pro fascist movement for another eighty years. Yeah, or or it could be a black swan. I mean, you know, keep in mind Russia has as many nuclear weapons as we have for all practical purposes. Um, right. And 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 right. Putin, if Putin's backed into a corner, or if he thinks he's on the verge of death and he's trying to leave some great legacy for himself or something like that, God only knows what could happen. I I. I, I don't disagree with you, but on the other hand, if he's allowed to swallow up Ukraine, God only knows what happens then. That's that's a good point. Alan, thank you. Yeah. I, we're not going to resolve this. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, no, but food for just, thought. Yeah, food indeed. Thought. Good conversation. Thank you very much. Barbara in Tompkinsville, Kentucky. Hey, Barbara, what's up? Hi. Um, I'm, I just want to talk to you about the theme of fear being the cause of hate, and it is not. And when we... Uh, when we say that fear is the root of hate, we are normalizing and making uh, hate something different than it is because we all can empathize with somebody who does something out of fear because that's a self-protective kind of thing that is very human. Mm. But hate is not fear. fear. Fear causes different reactions in the brain than hate. And fear causes you to, to want to get away from and avoid and uh, escape hate is a following hate is a stalker that mm. watches for the hated a hate is a pursuing kind of thing it is totally different than fear it's not resentment now it's like measles there are symptoms to measles which are runny nose watery eyes those kinds of things fever and a rash but but you cannot say that every rash is measles or or that measles is caused by a runny nose or any of that those are symptoms right. so we do have these symptoms but hate is totally different. Hate is, well, I believe that hate is a virus. And I can say it's a virus because viruses are not living or uh, entities. They are, um, they are, uh, um, they only are defined by their behavior. That's why we can call things that attack our computer a virus because a virus is defined by its behavior as a narcissist is defined by its behavior. Right. And, and uh, this virus it goes through the very same pathogenesis as any other disease. Hate is a virus that enters through our senses. Hate is a pathogen. Uh, that pathogen is usually a hate speech that then can enter through our uh, through our senses or through a, a perceived injury, a breach in the skin for those who are so, so, Barbara, can, what I, I get it. What provokes hate and what makes people vulnerable to hate if it's not fear? Okay, I think narcissism makes people vulnerable. Vulnerable. Mm. Narcissism already has 
uh, suppressed empathy and uh, and affects critical thinking already. So those people, the more narcissistic you are, the more You're vulnerable you are. You're listening to X-Ray FM, KXLY Portland and 91.1. a pathogen that is like hate speech and all of visual mm-hmm. and those kinds of things that gets passed. And, you know, we all have that sense that it is a disease. Uh, uh, in 2008, Ziki and Romagna uh, had their, they discovered on a functional MRI, the hate circuit in the brain they can see hate in the brain and it is not the same as fear resentment uh you know rage it's different than rage but all of those can be symptomatic once you come down with hate the sickness it enters the body through your senses and what you perceive and then inside the body in that brain circuit they saw in the brain it it suppresses empathy if you had any left, if you're a narcissist, you don't have that much. But if you not a not and narcissism is not a it's not the, the diagnosis for personality disorder, but a range of narcissism that that we we all have, you know. Uh, but the further you get on the range, the more susceptible. So, what is prophylactic against hate, Barbara? What 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 can cause you know? How can we raise our children or or ourselves for that matter to be immune to hate? Well, it's empathy. It's empathy. empathy. And you can see that the haters are so keyed in on empathy. Um, I was living in Texas when the first uh, uh, came up about the uh, um, critical race theory. And the first woman who brought that to the school board down there said, my uh, high school boy, who's a football player, came home from school and cried uh, when he was studying uh, slavery. Mm-hmm. She went to the school board and said, you know, we can't have this. And, and they said, you know, you're making them feel, quote, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. No, what he was feeling was empathy. Correct. And they Which is a good sign. That means he's empathy. emotionally healthy. That's exactly right. But we can't have empathy when narcissists, they, they, they do not want empathy. They right. do not understand empathy. And they are out to destroy empathy because that's the basis of love. I get it. And hate and love are in a battle right they're the they're, uh, they're the antithesis of each other barbara I, right. I, I need to move along but thank you that was that, that was sure. very very thoughtful analysis and i can't uh, punch any holes in it at all i i, I honor your your analysis thank you vicky in uh, bliss michigan hey vicky what's on your mind today hi just a quick question thanks for taking my call sure. um so i was reading the 14th amendment uh, section three and in it, it gives a problem that you, you can't run if you are an insurrectionist or you've been rebelling against right. the U.S. Right. But on the very last part of it says uh, it has a solution, but Congress may be a vote or may by a vote of two-thirds of each house remove such disabilities. Correct. So my question is, why are we going through the courts with this if the Constitution already provides a solution? It's a good question, and it's been raised by other people. And and uh, you know, I don't have an answer, Vicky, but you're absolutely right. They, they and and the reason I believe the reason why they wrote that that way, why why they basically cut the Supreme Court out of the process, was because at the time that the Fourteenth Amendment was written and passed, Roger Taney was still the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, and there were still multiple people on the court who, like Taney himself, were slaveholders, and they did not want those guys to be involved in the process of deciding who the president would be during Reconstruction. 
And so they they said, you know, for this uh, for this problem of a, uh, an insurrectionist wanting to be, uh, you know, an, uh, to hold any public office, if this if this problem is to be solved, it's to be solved by not by the courts but by Congress. So you know, your point is absolutely one hundred percent spot on. The the solution is built right into Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, but, uh, you know, the Supreme Court, ever since the Marbury decision in 1803, has been basically taking responsibility for everything. And um, it looks like they're going to take they're, they're going to take this one on, too. But I you know, and but that's that's what it is, Vicki. Vicki, I got to run. But thank you for the call. Forty six minutes past the hour. She is so right. Vicki is so right about this. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Right back with your calls in just a moment. Stay with us. And welcome back. Rod in Spokane, Washington. Hey, Rod, what's on your mind today? Oh, I wanted to talk about Trump supporters, and I'm not one of them, but I understand them. And I've, I've never heard one person correctly address the, the reason they like Trump so much, no matter what he does or says. And the point being is the jobs that went to China, all encouraged by Republicans well, under the rouge of free marketing or whatever. But since then, they've turned it around, Trump did and blamed it all on Democrats, and that they are going to bring back, or he is going to bring back the jobs from China and make their communities come back out in the flyover country. And since he's the only person that's ever courted them, mm. and I say that like, like you'd have to go into dating to understand the psychology behind this. Right. But he's the only one that's addressed the issue directly, except for when the college uh, liberals, uh, the young ones, start talking about loan forgiveness. They're in the same issue. The jobs that went to China are not here now, which means uh, our country is going down and being governing less. Yeah. Now, Trump has addressed the issue as, let's make it great again and bring our jobs back from China. Now, whether or not uh, they or, me, or even me or are prejudiced or we don't like gay people or we do like them, it doesn't really matter. That could be true. It's not, it's not a lie. Right. But it's not the truth. It's the way they're supporting Trump. That's the truth I just told you. Yeah, no, and he, and made, a great, not- he made a great spectacle of it, you know, putting his uh, tariffs on them and then having to having to bail out the uh, the Iowa farmers yeah, all, as a result of that? All, all Republicans are a two-faced uh, um, uh, con artist. That's the whole point of whole, all, all conservatism. It's clear back with Reagan. Yeah. Uh, go, you go clear back to the founding of our country. Uh, they don't like the government of the United States of America. They want the old-school religious government that ran the world. Um I, I guess when you go all the way to the top, it's the Catholicism, the government of Catholicism, the Vatican State, Rome, 
Well, I think what they want is is Big Daddy. They want an authoritarian leader. They want somebody who's going to say, "I'll take care of everything. Just trust me, and uh, you know, I'll make life the good estuary, for you again." The estuary of fascism is is Catholicism. You guys, you guys act like small children uh, in the second grade. Whenever you talk about uh, the the country and all that, you guys never evolved. You're you know liberals. You guys never evolved past. Uh, me and my mom are real proud of me for graduating. You guys got to quit that childish behavioral. I don't know what you're talking you're about. Here, you're losing your whole country, and you guys are all just sitting around being proud you all graduated from college. That's yeah, what I'm talking about. Yeah, I you know, give me an example. Well, look look where we're at. Everybody that's graduated from college, all the money that's been spent, sending everybody to college, and now look where we're at. What is, uh, now you think that's you think that's all the rednecks' uh, fault? I you know I, no, and any more than I think that it's the fault of you know apples being green or red or something. I mean it's it, you've you've wandered into an area that makes no sense to me. But Rod, thank you for the call. I I, I think that uh, in part your analysis of Trump as the champion of the blue collar guy against China is ac- actually quite accurate. We'll be right back. Hey, thanks so much for sharing our program and for reaching out to our stations and sponsors and letting them know that you're listening. It really means a lot to us. From Los Angeles to Columbia, South Carolina, from Birmingham, Alabama to Baltimore, universal basic income programs are chalking up proof after proof of their viability. Basically, just giving people, low-income people, poor people, somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a month, no strings attached, is lifting people out of poverty, getting them back on track, getting them into solid middle-class jobs, helping their children tremendously. This works. Now, we don't have to do UBI in the United States. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care program. Health expenses are whacking a lot of low-income people. We're the only country, developed country in the world that doesn't have free college education. Education expenses are whacking people. There's a lot we could do. We can subsidize housing. We can subsidize food. We do that with food stamps. We could expand it. There's a lot we could do to, to, to benefit from this. There's a whole report about that over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Fifty-two minutes past the hour. Picking up your calls here, Deborah in Chicago. Hey, Deborah, what's on your mind today? Thank you, Tom. Thank you for accepting my call. Um, you probably can. You gone over this but as far as trump and if he becomes a dictator of course i don't want that in fact tom before i knew who the man was i wasn't watching i didn't do much watching of tv i think i remember you with brian lamb um in the early 2000s but i got away from yeah, watching. C-SPAN. but yes yes i love c-span but you with taylor swift the artificial intelligence the um the technology my tv the guys were unauthorized camera listening device so i wouldn't look but i would try to listen but the question would be that of if he became a president 47 and the billionaires, would they be able to rein him back in? And the reason I say this is because for my, I'm 65, 
and I've always been democratic and wanted the, the, to apply that to our community. Um, you were talking about uh, slum um, grounds or whatever. Um, someone mentioned about third world country. Going away to school, coming back, seeing my community in the 70s, that would make me realize things not right. Yeah. And for Ronner, um, the um, governor, I voted for him because it was like the Democrats, yeah. and especially Klein. I, I, I get it, Deborah. Deborah, let me answer your question, if I may. Um, I, this was the question that I was asking with the op-ed that I wrote on Monday, you know, which was, you know, are will the billionaires fall into line between behind Donald Trump, or are they going to do everything they can to sabotage him? And and it appears that there's a big divide. We've got some some right-wing billionaires who are openly, uh, enthusiastically Donald Trump fans. And then you've got other right-wing billionaires who are very much opposed to Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, it's, they're going to have to work this out. But I don't think there's any, you know, quick or easy solutions here. Deborah, thank you for the call. Fred in Pontiac, Michigan. Hey, Fred, what's on your mind today? Yeah, so I was really taken aback by one of the earlier callers um, saying how he, he thinks it's okay for us to start World War III. Now, a lot of us can uh, agree that Donald Trump being back the president is not going to be the greatest thing, but I think the elimination of humanity as we know it to keep him out of office. Probably not a good idea. You know, it's like cutting off your nose to spite your face is the ultimate example of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I, 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 uh, I was not enthusiastic about the proposal. Uh, this was, you know, the earlier caller said, let's declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And, of course, that would bring the United States into immediate conflict with Russia. Um, you know, I, I totally get it. I, and it's not going to happen. Uh, so I, I wouldn't worry too much about it, Fred. But, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, you know, all kinds of positions get, get aired on this show. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm going to endorse them. Fred, thank you for the call. Jack in Minden, Nevada. Hey, Jack, what's up? Well, I, I just wanted you to weigh in on uh, the last two primaries. I've looked at half the voting, um, and it's been very low in both South Carolina and my state of Nevada. Mm -hmm. I'm just if you thought about that or have any comments. Well, the Democratic uh, primary is not generating much activity because it's a, a foregone conclusion. You know, Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. Uh, the Republican nomina nomination is, uh, doesn't appear to be generating a lot of activity because um, you know, there's, there's really not much of a contest there. I mean, you know, it looks like Donald Trump's just going to walk away with it. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Well, you know, yeah, I I do agree on on the point that well, why go vote if it's a foregone conclusion that right. Biden will win? But the I think state? when the, when, the, like when when November comes and you're looking at the choice between Trump or somebody like Trump on the Republican side, and Biden, particularly with the uh, just extraordinary things Biden has accomplished, putting our economy get back together. Um, you know, getting our fossil fuel situation under control, uh, working to, to mitigate global climate change. He's uh, released billions of dollars, uh, you know, released millions of people from student loan debt. He's now taking on a medical debt. I mean, there's just been a lot of great stuff that he's done. I, I think in the general election, you're going to see I, that enthusiasm I, return, John. I, I do agree with all that. Just, you know, the only thing I, I will mention in Nevada, I know the re on the Republican side, um, they weren't supposed to do it, but they had a caucus for Republicans. Yeah, no, I know. It's, 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 I'm Jack. I'm sorry. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. We'll catch up with you tomorrow.
been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. America's economic and political inequality has led workaday Americans to exclaim, the system is broken, let's fix it. But there's another version of this protest that I'm hearing more frequently these days. The system is fixed, let's break it. That certainly applies to such rigged systems as money in politics and voter suppression, but it's also relevant to seemingly mundane matters that restrain our personal freedoms. One of the insidious fixes we need to break is the claim by brand name corporations that we consumers must be banned by law from repairing the products they sell to us. The weak battery in your cell phone, the fuel sensor in a farmer's tractor, some gizmo in the toaster you bought, a fuse in your business's truck. You could fix all of these yourself or, with a little hassle, take the problem to a local repair shop. But no, such manufacturing powerhouses as Apple, John Deere, and Panasonic assert that only their corporate technicians are authorized to open the product, which you own, to make it work again. So you are expected to deliver it to their distant facility, wait however many days or weeks they tell you, and pay an inflated price. They've literally fixed the fix for consumer products. They impose their control by making the products as needlessly complicated as possible, then claiming that the complexity is their patented proprietary product. Thus, they say, they don't have to provide repair manuals or sell repair tools to consumers or independent shops. Gotcha. To give their closed profiteering system the force of law, the giants have deployed armies of lobbyists and lawyers to legislatures and courts, arguing that self-repair people really are scoundrels trying to circumvent safety and environmental rules. This 